definitely human. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to The Bunker, episode two. If you're new to the show, we recommend starting at the beginning with episode one. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so by sending us 12 shipping crates of Earl Grey every year. Or just rate and review The Bunker on iTunes. That would be great, too. This is a public information announcement. In the event of nuclear war, environmental disaster economic collapse, viral outbreak, robot uprising, or, more likely, a combination of all these things, you will probably be fine. Seriously, don't even worry about it. Hello, 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 hello. You're listening to The Bunker, humanity's best and only remaining radio station. My name is David. My name is also David. And I'm Tom. Now, some of our more perceptive listeners will have noticed a slight change in the quality of Tom's microphone. Now, why might that be, Tom? Well, David, I'm actually speaking to you from The Bunker rooftop, where I've spent the last half hour exposed to the vast terrifying emptiness of the wasteland. That's right, we've been having a bit of trouble with our turbine generators. They get clogged up with dust and blood and need a good clean every 40 years or so. And it was decided by everyone who wasn't Tom that Tom was the perfect man for the job. Uh, Tom, while you're out there, why don't you tell us a little bit about what the wasteland is like? It's an ocean of sand and rock, punctuated only by ruined towers and bones. Any signs of life? There can't be nothing. You heard the man. There's nothing out there, Dave. And all the things that are out there are incredibly good at going unseen. At least until they pounce. Wait! There is something! It's very small! I nearly 
see and what is it for what do you mean what does it do tom what's its function i, I don't know it's just nice hmm. if it doesn't have an obvious function it's probably best just to get rid of it and fix that turbine uh, so dave how's the traffic looking out there well david our scanners picked up a significant group of large green dots chasing two small green dots north until the large green dots wisely formed a pincer movement, cutting off the small green dots' passage and making them disappear. Coming up on today's show, we've got an interview with the incredibly handsome Stuart Laws, a short story about love, and a... Guys, something's coming! Oh, what, what is that? Oh! Describe what you're seeing, Tom. This is an audio format. Alrighty, we'll get back to Tom in just a second, but first, a song. This one's for all you ladies out there. is the hardest job in the world. You've just hung the washing out, polished the banisters, organised the garage, tuned the television, ironed the doilies, cooked, cleaned and mopped the kitchen floor and it's only half past nine. I'm just about to pick little Timmy up from nursery, but... Oh no! I've left my keys on the kitchen counter. Now I'm going to get footprints all over my sparkling clean floor. Oh, could this day get any worse? Not with Huxley's Hover Slippers Deluxe. Dirty floors are a thing of the past as you glide around your home. A modern domestic goddess, three inches above the floor. I was surprised by how affordable Huxley's Hover Slippers were. And they're saving me time on housework. Oh no! Here comes Dad, back from taking Rover for a walk, and they're covered in mud! Introducing Huxley's Hover Slippers for men, and Hover Paddies for dogs, in all new manly styles such as blue and football, plus exciting new flavours like sausage. Now we'll never have to touch the floor again! <laughs> Put all your problems beneath you with Huxley's Harbour Slippers, powered by dark matter.
You're listening to The Bunker, no doubt drawn to our hypnotic voices like a moth to fire. Tom is back in the bunker and he's brought someone with him. What's your name, Traveller? My name is Robert Swinton. I met your friend outside and he was kind enough to invite me in for powdered soup. Uh, by the way, I, I do apologise for startling you, Tom. That's all right. No harm done. Uh, you see, I saw your pallid complexion and the sunken eyes and mistook you for a mutant. Had you not screamed in that oh-so-human manner, I would have buried this iron pipe into your skull. <laughs> <laughs> well, we certainly wouldn't want that. No, indeed. Tom is a vital cog in our machine. Oh. It would take us weeks to find a suitable replacement. Anyway, never mind all that. Now it's time for today's topic. Objects. And, more specifically, actors. Ah. Well, I think I'd be able to cover that topic. You see, <clears throat> I'm actually the leader of a travelling theatre group. I teach them, train them, I frequently hit them, provide for them, and so on and so forth. You see, I frequently have to tell them they need to grow new brains. Old ways of thinking, all the successful strategies they developed at school and university with their emphasis on logic and argument, they just don't help. Emotional intelligence is what they require, and nobody teaches that. I teach them a different language, based largely on the work of an ancient writer called... Uh, let me recall... Uh, Konstantin Stanislavski. We'll talk about that later. <clears throat> the question is really for directors of film and television, given that they have a, a technical language. Well, how do they talk to actors? You see, I've worked on a number of student films over the years, and a goodly number of directors were terribly respectful, tactful, lovely people, listened as well as explaining what the shot would be, how they wanted me to handle the scene, and then they left it to me. Which is fine. I'm a grown-up. I know my job. A recent feature film had a director who was very conscious of not having worked with actors before. And though he knew he wanted the scene to go in a particular way, he was a little bit shy about telling me what to do. And my scene partner, however, was new to the business and she was scared. She found it very difficult to understand what was required, and so there were more takes than there need to have been. And as we all know, time is money. So, how is this avoided? Well, understanding how we train actors, how they think, might be of some use to people. There's the obvious stuff, use of voice, range, shifting the default voice, i.e. the natural voice of the individual, so that a, a deep voice, rather like mine, can extend to higher notes than usual, and vice versa. Flexibility of tone. So a, a nice, soft brown voice could develop a harsh, cutting edge. Modulation. Flexibility. 
the muscularity to change tone or volume on a sixpence. In fact, as fast as a thought, which is, of course, as fast as lightning. And physicality, changing the whole rhythm of the body. Le Bain, an ancient practitioner, often used for many, many years by movement teachers as part of their work. Well, Le Bain talks of energies such as dab, punch, flute, direct and indirect, so that the actor can escape his own innate physicality and adopt a whole new set of characteristics. <laughs> I was once asked to play a heavyweight boxer. You may have noticed I'm only five foot six. So I thought of a friend of mine who could handle himself in a fight. Whereas without this pipe, I would just run away whimpering. So I adopted his physicality, walking more from the pelvis and with a, a different level of self-confidence. The body responds to the imagination and adopts the posture instinctively, but can only do this because the body has been trained to a level of flexibility that allows the actor to do it. In my case, I was trained in Martha Graham dance technique. It was like learning a completely new language. I loved it. And it hurt. But that's all technique stuff the actor's done and got habitual about. And it shouldn't be necessary to remind him of how to do it, though occasionally you may have to prompt him or her to do something better. But now, the acting. There are loads of theories on how acting should be done, and loads of directors who claim to have uncovered the secret of acting. And like all pioneers of new ideas, they tell us this is the right way, the only way, and they are the only person who can teach it. Meisner, Michael Chekhov, the Russian school, the theatre of cruelty, Grotowski's poor theatre, physical theatre. The truth is, there really isn't that much disagreement about the basics. The point is to create a believable character, believable action. A believable illusion. So, the acting. Common language for actors. Objective, action, backstory, emotional recall. That's what you need to know. For each chunk of action, the character has a want or a need. Generally, this is called an objective. So, my objective at the moment is to earn my bowl of soup. The problem is, you want me to talk about acting, and so I can't achieve my objective until I've finished talking about acting. How I do this is by possibly speeding up my conversation. That is my action, what I do to achieve my objective. Objectives, of course, are not always achieved or achievable. But should you fail to give me my soup, I have this large iron pipe. Now, this sounds incredibly straightforward. It is. 
but students find it very difficult to identify what the objectives are, and even more so, the actions that they might play. Actors, oddly, often forget actions. But if you have a clear objective, clear previous circumstances, those things that have happened immediately prior to the scene, the actor should choose how he wants to affect his scene partner or partners in order to achieve his objective by pure instinct. Professionally as a director, I rarely talk about actions, though I occasionally do have to ask, so what are you playing on that line? Because either the actor isn't doing anything at all and it feels empty of meaning, just words said because they're in the script rather than inhabited, or else the action he has chosen is glaringly inappropriate to achieving his objective. Now, previous circumstances are really your business as the director. Clarifying what the actor thinks about the situation the character faces will ease his anxiety and his understanding. And with no rehearsal, it saves time on set, particularly in terms of the dislocation of story timeline necessary in filming. Context also needs discussion. Understanding the world of the film, the themes of the film, or the world of the character in particular, all of this is a useful way of calming the actor and starting up a conversation between director and actor. So, how to talk to an actor? The terminology of objective, action and previous circumstances is so familiar to us. It's, it's a useful shorthand. Then there's emotional recall. Have you ever been in a similar situation to the character? Or what's it like in your life? These are useful prompts, though frankly, any actor worth employing uses this instinctively. And if they aren't doing so, they may just be scared. If it's an extraordinary situation, unlikely to have been replicated in their experience, such as science fiction, the language of objective action and problem still work. You may not need to say all this. You may not need to say anything. But if it's a question of fine-tuning something that's right, fine-tune it the way you want. But be aware they've gone through a process of preparation and it's as well to know what that process is. And when they produce something different from what you imagined and it works, be grateful. I always say I make myself look cleverer than I am by incorporating the creativity of the people around me. Right. Questions? Uh, no, no. Uh, no, I can't think. No. Oh, come on! Try! I've been talking for a long time. Listen, that's the problem. That's exactly the problem. You leave me stuck up here and don't talk to me! Shrimp trawler working the waters along the Florida Straits 
normally has a good catch. But today, just as dawn broke over the Caribbean. I've snagged heavy objects in our nets. Looks like a torpedo. Unable to hoist the board and examine. Request assistance, over. It's February. Your country's designated month of love. As is tradition, the price of confectionery, flowers and masturbation eggs have dramatically increased. Restaurants are taking bookings and generic mass-produced greetings cards are pumping out of our factories. Yes, love is in the air. Church bells are chiming, birds are singing, hearts are fluttering and Cupid is loading his rifle. So get out there and contribute to our economy. There's all sorts of authorized romantic gestures you can make. Go out for dinner, go to a movie, buy chocolates, buy cakes, buy roses, buy lingerie, buy jewelry, just buy! This is the only chance you'll get this year to tell that special someone how you really feel. So follow your heart, boys and girls, follow your dreams, follow your mandatory guideline on how to emotionally connect with another human being. Romance not, because we say you're worth it. This was a government-sponsored message. You're listening to The Bunker with David, David and Tom, the humble and somewhat handsome champions of the wastelands. We've just been going through some of your letters where you spill out all your hopes and dreams, loves and losses, and I have to say they are very funny. Does anyone know where Rob got to? Oh, he's gone. Rob is a nomad. He can't stay in one place for too long. The road is always calling him. Huh. Now, when you think of the word love, what's the first thing that comes to mind? That's right, crippling loneliness. But what if I told you it didn't have to be that way? Lonely Hearts is a brand new section of the show where we help you, the listeners, find true love and or things to hunt. So let's have a look at some of these letters. Ah, here's a good one. Uh, Hi, my name's Phil. Hi, Phil. Uh, I'm a single white male from Big Ben, seeking female for long-term relationship. Uh, Must have good sense of humor and fully functioning genitalia. Well, I hope you find what you're looking for, Phil. Mm -hmm. Amy writes in to say, fun-loving, carefree widower seeks Chinese five-foot-two male with short black hair called Li Yan Chak. Well, that's weirdly specific. And this from Tim in Westminster. I am a cuddly and lovable middle-aged man, easygoing, with a deep passion for cooking and hunting. I'm interested in meeting a young, tender woman between 70 and 80 kilos with a little bit of fat on her, but not too flabby. She will have been fed on grains and berries and have firm, fleshy limbs. Personality irrelevant. Mm. Um, and here's one from Anonymous. I am a mature, mild-mannered man with nice hair and Welsh heritage, seeking human for friendship and possible romance. I live underground with my housemates, but sometimes yearn for something more than my isolated existence. Will you sweep me off my feet? 
<laughs> wow. Wow, that last guy sounds like a real loser. Well, that's all the uh, Lonely Hearts we have time for. Good luck to all you hopefuls out there. And remember, if you have any burning desires, you should probably consult a doctor immediately. There's a great visual gag in the third Naked Gun movie. The camera pans slowly up Anna Nicole Smith's legs, but exaggerates their length and gives an extra pair of knees. Naked Gun isn't exactly a feminist classic, but this playful spoofing of cinematic cliches highlights a key concept in feminist film theory. The joke draws attention to a moment when three gazes are united. The gaze of the camera filming the legs, the gaze of the other characters looking at Smith, and the gaze of the audience placed in the same position as the characters in their presumed sexual desire for Smith. For all three, the woman is the object of the gaze. The critic Laura Mulvey, in her beautifully persuasive article, Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema, is credited with theorizing the gaze in film. She divided the gaze into three looks. The cameras, the spectators, and the characters. The gaze that Hollywood cinema created by manipulating these looks, she argued, was exclusively male. It turned women into objects, with no force or power of their own, other than a superficial ability to excite male desire, um, to be looked atness. Rather than simply relating countless examples of this in film, Mulvey used elements of Freudian and Lucanian psychoanalysis to show that Hollywood filmmaking reflected the desires of a patriarchal unconscious. She took Freud's notion of scopophilia, taking sexual pleasure from looking, an activity that turns others into objects of a controlling and curious gaze, and applied it to the way in which films are viewed. The spectators, she suggested, are voyeurs, anonymous in the darkness of cinema staring wrapped at the hermetically sealed world of the bright screen. If this sounds like it's taking all the pleasure out of cinema, that's kind of the point. Sometimes you have to question where you're getting your pleasure from. It might seem fun to enjoy the privileged position of the oppressor, but it may not be worth it. As storytellers, we have the responsibility to face this kind of ugly truth. Wow, what a great time I'm having today. Love is in the air, just generally, I mean. I'm personally feeling revitalized and purified after last week's ritual sacrifice, and it really feels like it's been a great show so far, am I right? Well, I'm really, How can um... we top this? How could it possibly get any better? Oh. Wait a minute. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? Oh, you know I am, Dave. It's time for tea and mini pancakes. Oh, it's not the same. Hey, come on. Don't be like that. It's not about what we eat, but how we eat it. Forget the frown and pick up a pancake. Bunker spirit, yeah? Guess. Great. Now, for those of you unfamiliar with the show, tea and biscuits, uh, I mean, mini pancakes... 
It's the time where we take a moment to savor the little things in life, the things that make it all worthwhile. If you want to join in at home, it's easy enough. At first, you get your nice hot mug of tea, then you get your biscuit or pancake, and you dunk. Come on, Tom, give it a go. Okay. Oh, it's all soggy. I think it's gonna drop. Oh! Ah! Oh no! It's in my eye! Ah! This doesn't work. It should be biscuits, not bloody pancakes. This is a disaster. No, no, no! You just had a bad pancake. Look, let me have a go. Oh god, it burns! <laughs> it's hopeless. It's hopeless. We're doomed. Tom, they're just biscuits. Just biscuits. To a rich man with the bounty of the world within his grasp, yes, they might just be biscuits. But to a man that sleeps on a bed of folded bath mats and whose prized possession is a first edition of William Shatner's Tech War, biscuits are the vestige of a better life. Crumbly, sugary slivers of hope. I was 17 when I met Kim, and I knew she was the one. Oh, she was perfect. She understood me, loved me. I felt safe. We both did. We moved to London together, you know, far away from the comfortable countryside that I'd loved. And London was different, intense, big. By 24, I was an alcoholic. It started innocently enough, but over time, I just... I didn't know when to stop. I, I blame my parents. Kim left me. She had no choice, really. And I don't blame her, you know. I, I'd become unbearable. We used to spend whole weekends together, just lying in bed and eating cake. Every morning I'd wake up and she was already dressed for work. I'd kiss her goodbye. She tasted of cold tea and toothpaste and love. So I cleaned up my act. I gave up drink for good, and I got a job as a fumigator. I did all this because I knew that I wanted to be with Kim. I just had to prove to her that I could be the man she wanted me to be. Everything I did was for her. So one day I got a call from this guy who was unhappy with some work I'd done at his house. It was this old guy called Derek. He lived out in some rural area, surrounded by woods, which was actually great because it gave me a chance to get out of the city. Derek was worried about this mold that was growing in his basement. He seemed to think it was dangerous. In fairness, it, it did seem pretty bad. The mould was white and like slightly sticky, and it covered a good portion of his basement, 
occasionally popping and bubbling on the walls, letting out little clouds of dust. I was fully protected in my usual gear, so I set about poisoning this mould, but it only made things worse. In the end, I told Derek I'd have to burn it. He was all for it, you know, praising my initiative and uh, hacking up great globules of spit. I obviously declined his offer of tea, but the fire, it proved futile as well. This strange white mould simply grew back. I was getting pretty pissed off at this point, but then I realised that this was just another challenge, that I shouldn't be afraid to take on challenges. If I couldn't beat this mould, what chance did I have at a relationship with Kim? I couldn't afford to give up so easily. I was at my best mate's birthday party. Paul. He was a really nice guy. I wasn't drinking and Paul was only having a couple of beers. I guess parties weren't really his thing. More for everyone else's benefit. So we chatted about life and he seemed happy just to listen. So I mostly talked about myself. Then I saw her. Kim. She'd come with her friends, who were friends of friends. I suppose it was inevitable, really. I spoke briefly to her best friend, Stacy. She didn't think much of me. That's okay. I didn't think much of Stacy either. Stacy was a bitch. Kim and I danced and then we snuck away to be alone. I told her I loved her and she cried. Then we kissed. She tasted of red wine, cigarettes, and lust. Still couldn't destroy the mold. No matter how much I tried, I scrubbed it with everything I could get my hands on. I started experimenting, you know, mixing concoctions, poisons, gases, liquids, nothing worked. And all the time I was there, Derek coughed and coughed like his lungs were literally trying to crawl out of his throat. Oh God, it was disgusting. Kim was going to university. I don't know why this was such a blow to me. I should have expected it. She was a bright girl, you know. She seemed different too, older. We continued to see each other after the party, but it wasn't like it used to be. I was losing it, but I couldn't let her go. I, I, I put too much into getting her back. I knew somehow, deep down, she wanted things to be the way they were. When we were young, before all the problems. And then one day, <laughs> I did it. I made the perfect poison. It, it was a mixture of all manner of things that thrown together in my shed. By the end, I was drenched in the rancid stuff myself. I mean, I had a rash for a few days, but after that it was fine. And it worked. It killed the mould. Got rid of it all. Jotted down the ingredients in case I needed to make any more. But I'd done it. I could do anything. Derek asked me for more of the poison. I told him no. If the mould came back, he'd just have to call me up. I don't give handouts. I wasn't a flake anymore. I had some authority. Oh, he just coughed, his defining feature. Ugh, he coughed up so much he hacked up blood. Kim sat opposite me in a small cafe, eating a blueberry cheesecake and telling me that actually it really was over. She could be so matter-of-fact sometimes. She spun me this bullshit tale of wanting to make a life for herself. You know, get out into the real world, live, that old cliché. She even told me to move on. She couldn't even be honest with me. I know the reason why she was leaving. It was me. It was always me. I was too this and too that. Too much and not enough. I wasn't good enough for her. Not yet anyway. She wanted me to prove myself. It was around this time that Paul got sick. I'm really sick. He was bedridden. He kept asking for me, but I was really busy. 
you know, trying to sort my own life out. I went running every morning. I worked hard. I went on a diet. I wanted to be the man I knew I could be. For Kim. Paul died. Not long after. Apparently he just threw up blood until he passed out. Oh, man. I visited Kim at her flat and she was preparing to leave to go to university. She was going to have a better life, studying whatever it was that she wanted to do. I told her that I could change. I could fit my life around hers. She was upset because Stacy was sick and she was worried that she was going to die. I mean, I can understand her being upset, but I still wanted to talk to her about the two of us being together. In the end, she got angry and told me to go. After that, I, I felt at a loss. Stopped going to work. Even though I was getting more calls than ever. I'd never been so popular, but I couldn't bring myself to leave the house. Eventually, I decided I'd see Kim one last time, and if she rejected me, I was prepared to move on, but I was pretty sure that she wouldn't reject me. <laughs> Not this time. That time in the cafe, she had kissed me. I kissed goodbye, she said. She tasted of blueberry cheesecake and coffee and regret. When I got to Kim's flat, she didn't turn me away. She wanted me there to comfort her while Stacy screamed and screamed in pain. Stacy was really sick now and other people seemed to be catching it too. Even Kim was coughing. I felt fine. Stacy was lying in bed. Her room stank of shit and blood. She was grey. Her, her skin was peeling. Her eyes were rolling in the back of her head. I just remember her family all stood around her crying. I felt Kim squeeze my hand as she sobbed. Oh, I felt really good. And Stacy started vomiting. It was sick at first, you know, and, and then it was blood and she started kicking and she scratched at anyone who tried to comfort her. Eventually, she slid off the bed, just lay still. Legs propped up against the wall, head on the ground, eyes staring blankly into space. Nobody moved or said anything. The city became quiet. A lot of people had died of this illness, but I'd been in the same room as Stacy and I felt fine. I mean, healthy even. Kim was too distraught to answer my calls, which I thought was very unfair, considering I'd been with her when her friend had died and I'd stuck through it, even though it was horrible. I stopped getting calls for work too. Even though the mold was everywhere now, I could see it all around the city. The dust was heavy in the air, raining down like ash over everything. All I could do was think about being with Kim, changing for her. I wouldn't let her go. I knew I could change and I knew I could win her back. People stopped going out. They barricaded themselves in their homes. The news reported that Things were getting worse and there was no way to combat the virus. You know, classic scaremongering. I went out more. I'd never really liked crowds before. So it was nice that the city was so empty. The dust still snowed down, swirling in the wind. It collected on the ground and, and my feet left tracks in it. <laughs> the city became a, a winter wonderland, almost. I mean, I knew it was just that ugly mold, but it looked pretty from a distance. After a few months, the city felt empty, like I was the only person on the entire planet. 
that I was okay. I didn't want to speak to anyone. I visited Kim just one last time. The door was open, so I let myself in. The house was still. Silent, like every other house now. Snowflakes of dust were falling all around, and the look on her face told me it was over. So I kissed her one final time, just to say goodbye. She tasted of blood, and dust, and nostalgia. You're listening to the bunk. We are preaching the peace. <laughs> you said it, Dave. We're surviving with style. That's right, Tom. We're riding the waves of radio. Yes. This is the bunker, the only transmission you're likely to hear. Quite. The bunker, a crumb of comfort in the vast, oppressive monotony of a blasted, irradiated wasteland. A little on the nose. So, David, what's the interview we're playing today? Well, I thought we could dust off the old interview with Stuart Laws, the filmmaker, producer, and stand-up comedian. He makes a rather interesting point. Uh, what was that? Look, where have the lights gone? Is anyone else suddenly really cold and finding it a little difficult to breathe? The power's gone. Oh, is that what happens? So it's damn turbines again. I'll go and have a look. You're going outside? It's nearly 8am, it'll be night time soon. I'll only be 10 minutes. Uh, play the interview, I'll, I'll be back before it's over. Is the is the radio still working? Uh, yes, everything's working fine, except for the lights, the heating, ventilation, oxygen, the electric fence. All right then, should we play this interview? This is Stuart Laws, before that horrible stuff happened. Stuart Laws is a writer, director, producer. He is a founding member of Turtle Canyon Films. This was formed in 2008, but he has been making films since 2002. Their output has been prolific, with five feature films and dozens of short films and sketches made. Aside from being a filmmaker, Stuart is also a stand-up comedian. He joins me today to talk about filmmaking, his thoughts on creating a stand-up comedy show, and what products he uses on his beautiful hair. Hello, Stuart. Can I call you Stuart? Uh... Yep, that's, that's fine. So, Stu, tell us a bit about yourself. Well, I run Turtle Canyon Films, which is an independent production company. Um, we're based at Pinewood Studios, and we started basically out of a corporate company. So me and my business partners, we, we started working together out of corporate sort of doing corporate jobs together but we the reason why we started doing that was because we wanted to make films so when we were 18 19 20 we made 
a DVD of short films, got it classified by the BBFC because that meant that we could sell it. I think we sold 17 copies and it was available to rent from our local video, video store, which was very exciting. Um, and then we made a feature, sort of very low budget, self-finance sort of thing. And then we watched them back about two years ago and went, ah, what were we doing? Uh, so now we're at a stage where we've sort of, in the past few years, we've sort of taken all of our corporate experience, um, all of our experience sort of mucking about making films without anybody watching them and are actively trying to make films that people would watch now. So we've been sending them off to festivals rather than leaving them on hard drives, um, developing new feature films and uh, sort of just sort of just trying to, to get them out there and watched by as many different people as possible. So um, I've directed a few, I've written a few, um, but we like to collaborate and we think that's a really key thing with, with films is that it's a collaborative thing. And so we've worked with writer-director teams and just purely been the, the producers on a film and um, we've taken on writers projects and sort of developed it further and directed them ourselves so it's a it's a big mixture and we like to sort of use the online world as much as possible and sort of create exciting new projects um hopefully building to you know features and and beyond in the new uh distribution model that exists in the world today gosh you're pretty how do you stay in shape <sighs> well I would, I think just a natural metabolism, very little work goes into it and if you would see me with my top off, I think you would probably restructure your question. You're so funny, how are you so funny? Uh, probably, well I guess with stand-up comedy, there the narrative element is, um, it's important for an audience to have a grip on who you are. Um, when I started, um, I started just purely because a, a friend had uh, started doing it at university and it sort of encouraged me to and there was an open mic night on and I just went along to it and basically I didn't understand it at all. I didn't even watch that much of it. I had barely been to any sort of live comedy um, and I just sort of just wrote down a load of different thoughts and sort of started to perform it and then for a few years and sort of honed it and got rid of some of the really really atrocious stuff and replaced it with deeply mediocre stuff and the problem I found is that I would do one gig and it would go really well and then I'd do another gig and it would go terribly and I couldn't work out why what was going on and obviously that can happen you know to anyone at any level but as I went on I realised I wasn't enjoying it very much and it was partly because I wasn't sort of happy with who I was on stage I was quite a sort of um, schizophrenic character on stage sort of delivering a one-liner and then you know doing a slightly elongated story and then doing a standard joke and skipping around and talking about an occasionally offensive thing and then really whimsical silly stuff and the audience couldn't get a grip on who I was so sometimes when it all worked perfectly and the audience was right balance it worked and other times it didn't and so it took a while for me to realize that the audience has to understand you and then you need to start introducing sort of elements of narrative and so I did my first hour show um, last year at the Edinburgh Fringe it was called Stuart Law's Absolutely Will Not Stop Ever Until You Are Dead brackets one hour show and 
that did have a narrative it talked about sort of my uh, life would largely have considered myself as sort of quite a, an omega male or little spoon as sort of as I define it in the show um, and I sort of find someone in the audience who I sort of see as more of an alpha male or big spoon sort of person and the show sort of has a, a narrative of sort of a big sort of opening and a sort of attempt to doing a lot of audience work and sort of sowing the seeds of this sort of big spoon sort of narrative and then I go into about a 20 25 minute bit about sort of myself growing up and sort of sort of the more uh, omega things that I used to do spending most of my teenage years playing championship manager two um, finding a power animal um, at center parks um, and sort of all these sort of little things and my dad taping uh, movies off the TV for me and you know that being my sort of glimpse at the adult world and sort of trying to be more grown up and uh, it finally builds into sort of taking all that audience interaction from the start into sort of a finale where I get to become the big spoon by spooning um, the, the other little spoon in the audience and then I get the big spoon out and the little the other little spoon gets the spoon the big spoon everyone becomes a big spoon and that's the sort of the ending and so I deliberately over the years of writing the material sort of noticed that there was this thread of me sort of being sort of an inferior thing and stand up that is sort of where you're supposed to put yourself in a way you're supposed to say hey audience I'm not quite as good as you um, so it's all right for you to laugh at me and the things I'm doing um, and so I realised that that was the, the storyline that I had to go with and so then just finding the rhythm and, and how it built to that ending and how it then gave the audience sort of uh, an uplifting ending as well. It wasn't just me sort of getting to become the big spoon and the whole hour wasn't just about me, it was about the audience as well and going on this journey and everyone being together. I mean, when I say it like that, I go, oh, that sounds quite good. Um, there was one person who said it was the worst show that he'd seen in Edinburgh that year he was a reviewer he was the first reviewer that came in and it was a great show I really enjoyed it and like the whole audience I'd sort of had really nice feedback from from people I was like oh great I knew there was a reviewer in I look forward to that he I mean his pull quote he gave me in his review was uh, natural comedian dot 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 amiable Aussie I'm not Australian dot 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 kill me now and I think that's sort of summed it up for me uh, um, is that you could sort of spend a few years writing that and really sort of trying to put in quite a lot of effort into putting together a narrative but if the reviewer comes along and thinks oh, that stuff where he's talking to the audience is just irrelevant it's because he hasn't got any material um, then your show just is awful um, so I've taken that on board and for my new show I will be really maximising all the audience interaction and inviting him back and hoping that again he decides that he's seen the worst show of the fringe um i did have some nice reviews as well um but that was the sort of the first one i got for this show and it sort of stuck with me and i think it's a real good pull quote for the poster next year uh kill me now can i can i touch your hair what product do you use it's beautiful um here's a question people are dying to know What's your favourite position? Um, okay. Um, assume position you're asking sort of in relation to comedy because that's the only way I can make sense of that question. Um, comedy, for me, is 
a very powerful sort of tool in film and narrative because comedy more than majority of other action has a, has the ability sort of dis, to disarm the audience laughter is such a spontaneous reaction you're not fully in control of it it's, you know you're laughing before you even sort of have sort of considered the entirety of sort of whether it be the joke told in stand up or you know the the funny dialogue or physical humor in in a tv show or a film um and so that more than anything can be to your advantage especially in film where you can sort of you make an audience feel relaxed feel like they really know the characters you know laughter sort of brings you closer to characters so if a character is funny or does something that's funny you're going to feel a, a greater affinity with them if i were to place my hand on your knee like this would you find that agreeable um i'm going to go if that's all right stuart come back so cheers for everything come back stuart i have more questions see ya stuart stuart Stuart. Stuart. You're listening to The Bunker. My name is David. And I'm Tom. The other David still hasn't returned from fixing the turbines, which means Tom and I are still sitting in complete darkness while the oxygen in the room grows thin. It sure is cold and dark in here. What was that? Probably a bird or something. Typical influence mind. Easily recognized by the this 100% volunteer group. We'll learn. Are you sad and alone? Looking for someone to share your life with? Never been kissed? Never been touched? Are you tentatively seeking a matchmaker to guide you on your journey to love? Do you want to be on television? Welcome to Love Castle, a show that pits hopeful romantics against each other in a thrilling battle of hearts, hormones, and carnal hunger. 12 men and 12 women getting down and dirty for 12 weeks. Who ends up in what and where is totally up to the public, who vote for their favorite couples at the end of each episode. Every intimate, meaningful moment between you and your potential partner will be recorded, cut, heavily edited, and shown to millions of people around the world to temporarily amuse and distract them from their awful, awful lives. Love Castle is your chance to find love. Send us your audition tapes now. Love Castle, a brand new reality TV experience now in 4D and Smell-O-Vision. Hey, Tom, you uh, want to sing something? No, I don't really know any songs. I'll just sing something, anything. Uh, happy birthday. No, no, not that. Sing something that has weight and soul, like those old songs from long ago. Um, okay. Uh, oh, baby, baby, how was I supposed to know that something wasn't right here? Oh, baby, baby, I should not have let you go. And now you're out of sight, yeah. Show me how you want it to be. Tell me, baby, I need to know now. Oh, because my loneliness is killing me. (laughs) 
Hey, are you alright? It's all over, Dave. We're dead. We're gonna freeze. I'll run out of air. Or get eaten. Or get eaten by whatever's found its way into the kitchen. Well, I don't want to be eaten live on the radio. Let's cut to something. This is The Bunker, your favourite radio station. If you're out there, maybe say hello. Call in, have a chat. <coughs> is, there, is there anybody out there? Wait, is, is there someone out there? This is David to The Bunker. Repeat, David to The Bunker. <laughs> Uh, David to the bunker. You're reading. <laughs> uh. <clears throat> <clears throat> Guys, seriously, can you hear me? Are uh, you picking any of this up? Guys. Who's huh. <clears throat> that? Oh, Rob, it's you. What are you doing here? Uh, I was just leaving. Oh. Is that a metal pipe in your hand? And 
what's in that big plastic bag? <laughs> it kind of, uh, kind of looks like our supply of canned foods. All right, <laughs> you've got me. I'm afraid I haven't been entirely honest with you, David. <laughs> you see, I sabotaged your turbine this morning so I could gain access to your bunker. I see. And then I took from you what I needed. It's what I do to survive. It's kind of my thing. Right. Now, the way I see it, we have a couple of options here on how to resolve this issue. My vote, and it is only my vote, would be that I walk away with this bag and in return for your cooperation, I won't bludgeon you to death with this pipe. <laughs> now that seems fair, doesn't it? What do you say? This is Katie to the bunker. I repeat, this is Katie to the bunker. Can you hear me? Yes, we hear you, Katie. We hear you. Oh, God. I've been trying to contact you for weeks. I'm running low on oxygen canisters and tinned food. I ate a wrap for breakfast and I do not recommend it. What are your coordinates? Um, our coordinates are 5150. Oh. What are you doing? What? Don't tell her where we are. What if she's a zombie or something? Oh, I hadn't thought of that. What's going on, guys? Need those coordinates as soon as possible, please. So what, what do we do? I think we should wait till David gets back before we make a decision. Guys? But what if he doesn't come back? I say we should help her. We've given out our coordinates before. Yeah, I didn't realise people were actually listening before. We just can't risk it. Besides, David will be angry with us if we start making decisions without him. Hi guys! Hello! <laughs> You're gone for a while. Yeah, what's all that? Oh, that's blood. Oh, you've trodden it all into the carpet. What a mess. This is going to take ages to clean. Sorry. And what are you doing with all those cans? Never mind all that. David, we've got a caller, someone to talk to. Listen. There's nobody there. But sh she was there. Right. Anyway, it's the end of the show and time for my final thought. Lust, attraction, and attachment are all familiar with the overlapping stages of love. Lust is all well and good, but if you're not attracted to your partner, the relationship ends as quickly as it begins, often involving a hasty escape from a stranger's bedroom. But if you manage to find some spark, something worth investing in, then you might find yourself tumbling headfirst into the rabbit hole of attachment, sharing a home, a dog, a child, and perhaps eventually a ceramic pot filled with mixed ashes. Of course, it's not just other people that we've fallen in love with. If you devote enough time and energy into anything, you're bound to love it in some way or other, even if it's just through banal familiarity. It could be a cat, a comfortable chair, or even a radio station. But of course, that's not true love. True love requires intimacy. That's why, despite many, many stories on the subject, it's really impossible to love someone from a distance. If you don't truly know someone, both mentally and physically, then you can't be in love with them. Love requires a bit of give and take to be genuine, otherwise it's simply infatuation. Nevertheless, many romantic tales are about people who have barely said more than two words to one another. Human beings are simplified and objectified and 
love becomes nothing more than a word. And the more we dilute the meaning of the word, the less power we attribute to it. And we forget what the whole thing really was in the first place. That was The Bunker, Crumbly Sugary Slivers of Hope. Hosted by David Knight, David Price, and Tom Dalling. Starring Matthew Woodcock, Helen Watkinson, Samantha Ray, Layla Pine, Juliet DeGans, Robert Swinton, Katie Turner, and Leanne Chack. Today's topic was written and performed by Robert Swinton. The short story was performed by Ben Keenan. The interviewee was Stuart Laws. The music was by Kia Doherty, Jonathan Day, Ben Osborne, and freesound.org, and the songs were Mr. Carnifex by Jonathan Day and Quiada by Call Me Greenhorn. This episode was written by David Knight, David Price, and Maximilian John, and edited by Tom Dalling. For more details, visit thebunkerpodcast.com and follow us on Twitter, at Bunker Podcast. All right, we're done here. Goodbye. Why,又是我,我,我,我,我,我,我,我,我,我,我,我,我,我,我,我,我,我,我,我,我,我,我,我,我,我,我,我,我,我,我,我,我,我,我,我,我,我,我,我,我,我,我,我,我,我,我,我